1: Yeah, thank you, Ben. This is Tony LaGreca, and this is Courage to Hope, and tonight I have a special guest. I have Michael Duggan. Um, He's a very interesting young man, and I say young because he's a lot younger than me, but uh,
0: I don't know if he looks
1: at it that way. Welcome, Michael.
0: Thank you, Tony. Thanks for having me on. Not always feeling so young you know, some mornings, that's for sure.
1: <laughs> You're traveling back and forth up the coast a lot from Florida to Massachusetts and so forth.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And uh,
1: So Michael is the owner of Evoke Wellness, which is in Cohasset. And tell us a little bit about Evoke before we talk a little bit about you.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Ev- Evoke Wellness, we're inpatient and outpatient uh, behavioral health care facility. Um, so we treat uh, those individuals struggling with primary substance use disorder, uh, my partners, Tom Dean and, and, and Neil McKinno and, and James Wahlberg uh, opened that uh, location. Actually, um, we were very lucky to find it. It was a beautiful, you know, isolated uh, building that sits privately on about eight and a half acres of uh, land in the town of Cohasset. Um, when we went to the town to propose to them our intended use of that building, it was originally a skilled nursing facility. Um, they met us with nothing but open arms. Um, you know, wh- what can we do to help you get open? We, we love the idea of this program uh, and these resources coming into our town. Um, and we were, we were un- you know, fortunately, unfortunately, we were just completely taken back, you know, because we've done this work for many years um, and You get a lot of towns, a lot of communities that want to help, right? They say, we want to help. We want to be part of the solution, just not in my backyard, you know, as long as the resources are somewhere else, you know, and sometimes communities look like, look at treatment as being part of the problem. The reality of that situation is the problem already exists in the community. People everywhere in every community are struggling more than ever today with substance use disorder, with mental health. Um, A lot of the indirect consequences to COVID, you know, pushing people into isolation has caused a lot of people to struggle even more and more with their alcoholism. So when we got that response, it just, it reaffirmed how important all of the advocacy work that's been happening for all of these years has had an impact on that conversation that we had that day. There's a coalition, for example, that is involved in in Cohasset, and it was founded by Christine Murphy. And they've been out there in the communities, educating the communities on addiction, uh, combating the stigma of addiction, uh, people like yourself, Tony, been out there in the communities, having these conversations and these forums, educating people about you know resources and about you know how many people have been impacted by addiction, and all of that resulted in that conversation that we had with that town that day. You know, so that's those are some of the indirect results to advocacy work. So it was just so uplifting to see that type of response because you always hope for it, um, but my experience has unfortunately been that you don't always see it um, for other projects that we've tried to get open. So um, that particular site, we opened uh, about a year and a half now, um, you know, around Thanksgiving. And uh, it's 64 beds um, for a detox and inpatient residential. Um, we treat people, um, you know, from 18 and older at that particular site. Um, And, you know, it's, you know, been, you know, pretty much at max capacity since we opened the doors, uh, because the need, again, has never been more greater, you know, at that particular spot. And now you have other locations as well? We we do. We have an outpatient partial hospitalization and intensive outpatient program uh, in the greater Boston area in Waltham, Massachusetts. Um, We also have some community supportive sober housing uh, in Weston and Wellesley, Mass., Um, just to provide the full continuum of care. Um, We're almost through the process right now of getting licensed for primary mental health uh, at the outpatient clinic in Waltham Mass because there's an ever greater need uh, for those resources. We also have uh, an inpatient um, detox and residential program in Merrimah, Florida. Uh, We have an outpatient program in Margate. Um, We're in the process of opening up Uh, a large hospital uh, in the next seven months in New Jersey, closer to the Allentown, Pennsylvania uh, region. And uh, I'm on the road today, this afternoon, up to Ohio, right in the Columbus, Ohio area. We're actually going to be opening uh, a 100-bed inpatient uh, detox and residential facility uh, right outside Columbus, uh, Ohio, uh, hopefully in the next five to six months, which is exciting as well.
1: You are very motivated, I can tell. You can see that to me. um, to have so much going on because I know how much work it is to keep all these different locations active. Um, so let's go back in time a little bit. How did you, what was your teenage life like in your early twenties and how did you get into this?
0: Yeah. I mean, definitely got into it, not from, um, a specific, you know, class or, or degree that I originally pursued, you know, my degree was, was more around, uh, you know, some of the, uh, hard knocks and depths of, of, of kind of where addiction took me in my own personal life. Right. And, um, through my own personal struggles, um, that's where I, um, when I, when I was able to come into recovery myself, uh, later on, I was, uh, able to start a, an, an intervention company called wicked sober, um, which is obviously Boston based and, and a big part of that, service was just to provide services where I identified a lot of needs during the time that I struggled with my own addiction problems. Um, so I'm, I'm a person in long-term recovery, as you know, Tony, I, I just celebrated, uh, back in April, April 14th, uh, 13 years, uh, of continuous, uh, long-term sobriety. Um, you know, I got sober in April 14, 2009, Um, But it was a a long journey just to get to that particular day um, of going in and out of many treatment programs, uh, a lot of short term solutions. Um, And I remember the process of trying to get myself help of calling every single day and hearing, no, we don't have a bed available. So, you know, back at that time, there wasn't as many resources back home. There wasn't a lot of local treatment resources for people to get a bed too easily. Um, So I struggled finding a bed. I remember calling every day, being put on a waiting list. And if you don't call the following day, you're removed off the waiting list. And a lot of times the only luck I had getting myself in a bed was during the holidays so I remember, you know, my mother telling me if she's going down to the high school football game to watch my brother Connor play football or well, my brother Matt play football. And I'd tell her, you know, I'm actually going to detox instead today because that's the only time they had a bed and racing to get there before the time was up, you know. Um, so it was very difficult to to try to get access to treatment, number one. And then number two, you know, a lot of times because of the stigma families will keep these types of problems within the families. We didn't necessarily want to talk about these things openly. I know I personally didn't as I was struggling with it. You know, I felt like people would be looking down upon me and judging me and seeing me in a certain way because that's how I perceived myself. That's how I saw myself. I was full of shame. I was full of guilt. I hated who I was and I was a complete broken vessel inside. And my mother, I, I imagine, you know, we've talked about this over the years as well as my father. They were going through their own struggles, you know, as as a as a mother raising the son who's struggling in terms of, you know, what questioning herself, like what did I do wrong? Or, you know, is is this part of my responsibility that, you know, he is where he's at in his life? Other are, are parents gonna judge me as a parent. So there's a lot of judge, judgment and and shame and, and, and guilt that she battled with during this time. And a lot of the suggestions for resources, you know, I would be giving her, and I would be getting these resources from people who were struggling with me versus people who were doing well, right? Because that's who I would surround myself with more than ever. So we went on this long road of really doing things, you know, my way. And I was the last person who should be directing the show. My planning kept getting me into detox. My plans were filled with. You know, just complete insanity at the end of the day, based on you know the desperation that addiction kind of caused me to reach in many points. You know, in my in, in my journey, um, I I got into the struggle with you know alcohol and, and marijuana, Tony, at a, at a very early age, um, just with the experimentation of alcohol. Um, I saw alcohol as something that was very socially acceptable growing up. My family, Irish Catholic family, um, there was a lot of, you know, uh, drinking, you know, and partying and, you know, and and people enjoying themselves from what I saw. And I just saw it so normalized, you know, as a child, my parents were very young for their age when they had not only me, but my three other brothers. So they had four boys at a very young age. They were around 26, 27 years old. Um, so, you know, we struggled a lot financially. So my parents would always be working and I found a lot of time with friends to just be going out and getting into a lot of harmless trouble. Um, but I played a lot of sports. So that really helped kind of ground me and give me a, a, a foundation, you know, in my, in my youth, you know, in my childhood years. Um, I played hockey, I played football, I played lacrosse and I was extremely, um, good athlete, you know, growing up, um, you know, even getting into high school, uh, I was Vasi lacrosse. I was captain of the Vasi lacrosse team, my junior year, um, which you don't typically see to a senior year. Uh, I was, um, you know, captain for Vasi football. Uh, I played Vasi hockey as well, and I, I did really well in these sports and it really kept me grounded. And it also very much helped me find a place you know, in, in high school and a place just growing up in terms of friendships and, and, and support systems. Um, when, when I started experimenting with alcohol and marijuana, it was, it was really off of peer pressure, you know, especially marijuana, to be honest with you, you know, fifth grade, you know, that's how young I was, um, you know, and I remember, you know, a lot of kids smoking weed and I remember, you know, constantly saying, I'm all set. I'm good. No, thank you um and then i was i hung around with a lot of older kids because i was old for my grade you know so i played a, i played sports with a lot of kids that were older than me um so they were already a lot of them experimenting with marijuana and i remember one of them said like you know like you know why don't you ever you know do anything you know or like why why ain't she like you know why aren't you ever fun you know like 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 us you know something like that and i just remember really hurt my self-esteem you know um and i felt like in order to kind of you know, fit in and hang out. You know, it's there was a lot of pressure to kind of partake, and that was just you know fifth, sixth grade. So I was just so young, you know. So I started experimenting with things, and you know, it didn't necessarily uh, get out of control until later on in high school. And then it became all about really the party scene. Um, just to kind of fast forward as much as possible, when I got into the second kind of, uh, season in high school, senior year, uh, playing hockey. Um, I broke my wrist and it completely took me out of sports. And, you know, at that point I was potting, you know, sp- you know, drinking, especially at that time. Um, the solution to the pain for my hockey injury, I, I just decimated my, my right wrist completely had, um, pins surgically in, you know, and in put into my arm had nerve damage that they had to co- go in and repair um so I was out of sports for the remainder of my senior year put on pain medication to help me deal with the pain you know of the uh, immediate accident accident and the surgery and um it just became more about let me just enjoy the remainder of my year before the college kind of um you know season begins um you know and that became the priority in my life versus school versus sports versus family versus anywhere else um And, you know, I was uh, just about to go to college uh, and I got into the school, uh, Bentley in Waltham, which is Bentley University now. And I had the opportunity to play football there. Um, When I was about to kind of transition into school that year, um, I went away on vacation uh, with uh, a girlfriend at that time and her family to Old Orchard Beach in Maine. And I remember the vacation very well, because there's a very pivotal kind of point in my life that I didn't realize at the time, what I realized or learned from myself, um, that kind of changed my trajectory from that moment moving forward, is I went away on vacation, and I forgot to bring any of these pain medications with me, right? Uh, so and you, I, were you,
1: um, you were hooked on opioids then,
0: you're did saying it, pain,
1: yeah, pain medication,
0: op- yeah. Opiates, yep, and, and didn't and didn't realize it as much. So I was taking, you know, uh, perks, you know, at that time, perks at uh, thirty milligram, um, um, you That's know, pills. Hip. Yep, and I didn't realize that there was a problem because I was always taking them in in constant demand, right, with no issues whatsoever, um, and I wasn't necessarily doing that much on a daily basis. It started in, on a very small amount, and then kind of grew and, you know, and the dosage kept kind of increasing, but when I went away, I didn't have any of these pills with me. And I remember being completely sick and I didn't realize they were withdrawal symptoms that much, you know, at that time, but I had these like flu-like symptoms and I was miserable. I was restless. You know, I was crawling out of my own skin. You know, I had the hot and cold flashes. Uh, you know, I was just completely miserable. And that whole night, you know, I couldn't sleep at all. You know, I was just, you know, they thought I was ill. You know, her family, her friends thought I was ill um, and just not feeling well. So when everybody woke up to go to the beach that morning, I stayed. I stayed in the room and they left me alone and they checked in on me here and there and said, you, are you feeling OK? And I was just I was sick in withdrawal symptoms, dying. And well,
1: you had you had dope sickness and. Most people equate dope sick as 10 times what a flu would be like, like like the flu on steroids.
0: Absolutely. And so so at that point I said, okay, then I started realizing why, right? You know, I don't, because I I need to go take something, you know, and I told everybody at that time, I'm not feeling well, I'm going to drive home. And I drove home back to Massachusetts and I drove to a friend's house who had what I needed, you know, I bought what I needed. I took it and I felt immediately better, immediately better. And at that point in my life, I made the promise to myself that I will never go anywhere again unless I bring something with me. And that's a really sad realization for an 18-year-old kid to make in his life, that he is such a prisoner to something that he's not able to even travel a couple hours away without having this in order to be able to live basically a normal life. You know, that's when I realized at that point that I was really a prisoner to this pill, right. That in order to function, I need to have it with me at all times. So what also happened is now I started to live in fear. That's when fear took over in my life. And that's why it's on a, it's on a, uh, you know, a, Completely outrageous story. It's just for me, it was more the beginning of something bigger, right? It was when fear took over my decision making process in my life. They talk about addiction. Addiction, in a lot of ways, becomes a survival instinct. You know, if you're trying to talk to somebody or reach somebody who's struggling with an addiction problem and you wonder why I can't get through to them, when I talk to families, I almost explain it to them a lot of the times that it's like putting your hand over their nose and their mouth in restricting their oxygen supply and expecting them not to fight you back because that's what addiction does. That's the part of the brain that it takes over. So for me, when I started living in fear, I knew that if I don't take these pills anymore, I'm going to feel the same symptoms I felt that weekend when I was on Old Orchard Beach. So in order for me to go to class at Bentley, I need to have these pills on me at all times in order to avoid those withdrawal symptoms in order for me to show up to football practice i need to make sure i have these pills with me in order to be able to you know show up to the field right the problem with that is is that my tolerance keeps increasing and when tolerance increases so does the cost of doing business at the end of the day right it becomes more expensive to keep myself from feeling these sick, which all symptoms and I'm not even chasing the high. I'm not even feeling high. I'm just taking these to feel normal. I'm taking these pills to function normally, to not feel sick, to be able to be a productive member of society. But the more expensive it comes, the more effort and involvement it takes out of me to be able to support this habit and to avoid these withdrawal symptoms. So that means less time going to school, less time going to football, and more time focused on doing things to support my habit. And that becomes a whole world of of choices that, you know, a whole world of of, of problems that it opens up to me in terms of what I need to do to support my habit on a day-to-day basis. You know, that's when I start making decisions at the end of the day that I never thought I would ever make. You know, I start doing things at the end of the day that I never thought I was capable of doing. And I understand how people get to that place of desperation is because, you know, I wasn't terrified of the consequences of any of these decisions. I wasn't scared of getting arrested for the things that I was doing. I wasn't scared of of dying. You know, at the end of the day, I was terrified of feeling withdrawal symptoms. That was the only thing I had control over in my life to some extent. And I needed to do whatever I possibly could to avoid those withdrawal symptoms, you know, but I'm hating myself at this point, hating who I am because this isn't who I wanted to become. You know, I'm I'm looking at people in the classroom and then I'm looking at them just going on with the day-to-day life. And I'm like, I just wish I was where, where they were at. From the outside in anyways, because I don't know what these people are dealing with, just like they didn't know what I was dealing with on the inside. You know, I'm driving down the street and I'm seeing somebody, you know, the guy working at Dunkin' Donuts or someone pumping gas at the gas station. I'm saying, I wish I had their life. They can wake up this morning and not be sick with withdrawal. And every day was a constant groundhog day. Wake up in the morning, do what I need to do to support my habit, to stay, you know, uh, stay basically um, you know, high. So I'm not feeling these withdrawal symptoms and wake up and do it all over again, every single day. And it became such a miserable existence. And I'm walking around just lifeless, just broken. And they talk about emotional bankruptcy. You know, that's what, that's what I felt. Emotional bankruptcy, the lowest low that I've ever felt in my life. You know, and I kept trying to go into resources at that time and get myself help, but I didn't know, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know the process, you know, I wasn't ready to take suggestions, you know, and I was looking for a quick fix solution, something instant, like an instant gratification that drugs gave me. I was looking in the recovery process, you know, let me go to detox, you know, for a couple of days, you know, hours even, and, you know, let me go there for the weekend and I'll go right back to work on Monday, you know, fixed, cured, problem solved. As long as I'm off drugs, I'm good. I have no problems anymore. And the problem was, is that was the problem. You know, that that couldn't have been further from the truth. You know, you take the drugs out of the equation for three to four days, you put me back out there in society. I'm the exact same person I was when I went in there. I haven't changed at all. I haven't addressed any of the underlying issues. I haven't worked on any of the real problems at hand, you know, and that's the kind of lived experiences that I had to go through in order to come to the realization that I needed more professional help. I needed as much possible help as anybody could ever give me to give myself a fighting chance in this thing at the end of the day, you know?
1: Well, This it sounds exhausting. Just listening to you talk about it. <laughs> exhausting.
0: Yeah, yeah. Every, every day, full-time job. It was a, it was a legitimately full-time job, of, you know, getting what I need at night before to, to wake up and not feel sick and then hitting the road all day long, you know, on a hustle, basically, to try to do what I needed to do to support my habit, to not feel sick that night and have enough to wake up in the morning again to go out there again, you know, full time every Mm -hmm. single day in this routine. And I'm not doing anything. At this point, I dropped out of football. I'm not playing anymore. I'm not going to any classes. But I want to be doing all these things, right? So I can't tell you how many times I sat in my bedroom And I had drugs in one hand and I had, you know, some type of medication that was like a step in to me in the right direction of getting better in the other hand and saying, you know, today's the day I'm not going to do it Today's the day I'm going to quit drugs. I'm going to register for classes. I'm going to join the gym. You know, all these things I want to be doing for myself. I wanted to be doing, but I just, it never happened because I was incapable in that position in my life of truly helping myself without outside professional help. And I did. I registered for classes, but by the end of that semester, I was dropping four or five classes a semester because I couldn't attend. I couldn't participate, you know, and I spent a lot of money on classes that I never even attended at the end of the day. A lot of debt I was racking up due to these decisions because I was incapable of of being able to function, you know, in, in the classroom, you know, as a as a normal student with everything going on at that point, you know, but it was exhausting, you know, to say the least. And I remember I kind of got to the kind of end of that road, um, you know, and, you know, I had an opportunity. I had some guy calling me to go to a treatment program out of state at that time. And, you know, I kept ignoring his calls. He kept calling, kept ignoring, um, you know, and it kind of got to a point where, you know, it was around the time where a a good friend of mine, we were doing a lot of things together. Uh, He had went away on vacation down to Miami with his girlfriend. And he was obviously struggling as well as I with his addiction. And he went to, uh, he told his girlfriend he was going to the store, I believe, to go get a pack of gum. And he went to South Beach and attempted to rob a couple by knife point. Um, to get money to buy drugs. And the couple, the person that was there ended up being an off duty police officer who had a weapon on him. And they ended up shooting and killing my friend on St. Patrick's Day in 2009. Um, and I remember getting that call at that time and just being completely devastated, you know, because at this point, I had a, a friend of mine that went down to South Beach uh, for vacation. And he was with his girlfriend, and he told his girlfriend at the time he's going to a convenience store to get a pack of gum, and you know went down to the beach in Miami South Beach to um, attempt to rob a couple by knife point in order to f- find money and resources to buy drugs to support his habit. Um, the unfortunate situation was, you know, number one, he was in that situation to do that; two, was one of the people that he attempted to rob was an off-duty police officer from West Palm Beach. And he had his firearm on him and he shot and he killed my friend on St. Patrick's day in 2009. And I remember all of that happening very well, you know, and just being kind of just, you know, hearing the news and, and being devastated naturally by it, you know, cause here's something that I'm doing with this person, you know, to support my habit all the time, you know, all of these decisions I'm making could have easily led me to that same result as him that day. Right. And, you know, around this time, you know, I'm just in the worst possible place. I'm homeless. I'm, I'm, you know, couch sleeping, you know, people get very tired of you sleeping on that couch when you bring nothing to the table at the end of the day, you kind of run out of options really quick. And I keep getting a call from that guy that I'm telling you about asking me to go to help. And it's in West Palm beach. You know, so I believe in God' incidents. You know, I just had a opportunity where I just lost my friends to this disease. You know, from somebody from West Palm Beach, but I have an opportunity knocking on my door from somebody in West Palm Beach to save my life. So I decide, you know what? I'm out of here. I'm getting on a plane, and I'm gonna give this thing a chance. You know, I'm gonna go out of town and. And see if that makes a difference at all. And I remember leaving having all these plans, right? I'm planning up my whole future. I'm gonna go down there for a couple of weeks. I'm gonna come back home. I'm gonna reconnect back, you know, with this relationship that I'm in with somebody who is also an active addiction. And I'm gonna go, you know, live with people that are also an active addiction, selling drugs, and I'm gonna stay sober, right? This is, yeah. is my this is my great plan when I'm going down there that I'll be back and all these things. I'm going to reconnect with all these people. And I show up down there at the facility and I'm hopeless. I really am. You know, I went through so many different detoxes and outpatient programs and I'm like, you know, what's this really going to do? Why is this going to be any different? You know? And I remember not sleeping at all at first, right? And I'm sick and I'm struggling with withdrawal symptoms and they're giving me comfort medications, but they're not a They're not, they're not heavily prescribing these meds, you know, and I had been up to that point, I had been in several programs where I felt great the entire time I was in there until I got out, I would get out and then I would be sick, you know, because they kept me on so many medications that I wasn't necessarily even going through the hottest pot in a, in a safe structured environment, you know, that was, you know, that, that I was actually moving in a direction of coming off of these drugs. And getting them out of my system. So when I was in this program, I struggled. It wasn't easy. You know what I mean? It wasn't every day was a cakewalk. I struggled. I didn't sleep at all at the beginning. And I remember my roommate, this guy named Ken. And Ken was an older gentleman at that time. You know, I was 23, right? Ken was probably in his, I don't know, mid-60s at that point, struggled with alcoholism. And me and him shared a room together. Really super nice guy. And I remember sleeping in my bed. I had a twin bed across from his and on the gap between that twin bed and the wall was a space. And I remember putting my legs in that space every night, trying to lock them in place, right? Because I'm, I'm restless and I'm tossing all over the bed and I can't seem to just sit in, in one place because I'm crawling out of my skin and I can't sleep. And I'm counting down the hours by the end of the night until the next morning begins. And I remember sitting there in bed and I'm I'm exhausted, but my mind is racing and I can't shut this thing off. And I'm counting down the hours until somebody knocks on that door and wakes me up for group that morning. You know, so I'm like, there's eight hours until group begins. There's six hours. There's four hours. There's two hours. And before you know it, they're knocking on my door for the next day to begin. And I haven't slept a wink And when you do that night after night after night, you start really losing your mind, right? You become impatient, number one, very irritable. You get to the point where you say, like, if they knock on my door to wake me up, there's going to be problems because you have no ability to really stand being around anybody, no patience to take, you know, any suggestions, no willingness, you know, for me anyways, at that point to really listen. I had a very negative attitude. And I wanted to leave and I wanted to go. And I remember two things during that time that I, that I was at that place. One is Ken, right? There was one night where Ken started praying out loud in my room, okay? So it was a pitch black room with two twin beds in it. And I'm tossing and turning. And all of a sudden, this stranger in my life who I don't know very well, only a matter of days, starts praying out loud. And I tell you, it was the most uncomfortable thing for me when that first happened, you know, and by a few nights in, I really appreciated those prayers because it helped me get through some of those tougher nights at the end of the day. I also remember wanting to leave. Some things happened back home with my family. I wanted to go back there and settle some business and kind of take care of things the way I knew how in order to kind of uh, deal with the situation that was going on. Um, and I remember the tech at that time, Dave McManus, right? And Dave, older gentleman from Philly, you know, the real deal, you know, alcoholic, was sober many years. You know, he sat with me all night long, you know, and talked me off that ledge, talked me over leaving. And I decided to stay just one more night, one more day, right? I decided to stay and give that program a chance at the end of the day to make my family sacrifice for what it took to get me there worth something at the end of the day. So all of a sudden I began to start sleeping again. And that's when I started to come out of the fog, right? It was about 14 to 21 days into treatment. And that's when I got to the realization that what the hell have I been doing this whole time in my life? Like, I started to understand how sick I was when I got to this, what I like to call a moment of clarity. And at that point I had a chance. At that point, I became willing to start listening and taking suggestions. And that's what treatment is a lot of ways in the beginning stages. It's just fighting people to stay long enough to get to that moment of clarity. If they go into a program and they leave after four, five, six, seven days, a lot of times they're nowhere close to that moment yet. You know, the willingness isn't fully there. Their understanding or grasp over reality isn't fully there. They don't have a clue yet that how sick they are <clears throat> they don't have a chance yet to even go out there and fight this battle for themselves you know because they're not equipped you know and a lot of times in our program th- that's exactly what it is in the first couple of weeks is fighting people as their as their their worst own worst enemies until they get to that moment of clarity and then you start seeing the transforta- transformation take place right but right before your eyes and it's amazing because you know while you're fighting for them, that they're there, that they're in there, just like I was. And when I started to transform, I started becoming my old person again. And that's when my mother started to recognize me when she started calling me on the phone and she started hearing my voice and saying, like, now I'm starting to see signs of kind of you again, you know. And 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 then she started getting hope. And then I started getting hope that maybe this time it could be different. You know, so I started listening to suggestions. And I came to the realization around that moment of clarity that my plan is horrible. (laughs) My plan is not going to end well. So I'm willing at this point to take any suggestions. I don't care what it is. I'll do whatever you tell me to do because I don't want to keep living my life this way. And that's when I started to have a chance, you know, to really start going down the right path in my life. And the suggestion obviously was, number one, don't go back home, you know, stay in treatment go to an aftercare program go to supportive uh, community housing a halfway house and you know start getting involved with meetings and start getting connected to people that have long term recovery in their life and start building that support system and that was one of the biggest key you know aspects to my recovery was who i decided to associate myself with on that journey there's two types of people in treatment at the end of the day people who are not yet there on their journey to really, you know, put in the effort that they necessarily need to, to stay sober, because they might not have had, you know, an opportunity to get to that moment of clarity. They might not have had, you know, lived experiences yet that put them in the position to be willing to, you know, put in that necessarily effort to get better, because a lot of it is 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 motivated by pain. Sometimes people haven't yet you know, had enough pain yet where they're still willing to go back out there and suffer, unfortunately, because for many years, you know, I wasn't, you know, necessarily, I hadn't reached that rock bottom, you know, that people talk about at the end of the day. Right. So, yeah. so how know, long
1: were you, how long were you in this treatment facility?
0: <clears throat> I was in that program for about 30 to 45 days. And then I went to uh, sober housing, and that was huge for me because, you know, listen, I'm, I'm 23, just turning 24 years old. I don't know how to have fun without drinking, you know. And here's the thing. Here was the biggest problem for me, right? The biggest problem for me was I knew where drugs taken me. My, my pill addiction took me to heroin because it became a cheaper substitute, you know, when I was out there running. And it was one of those things I said, I'll never do heroin. Well, when you're sick and you're feeling what Charles... And, you know, for me, you know, pills became heroin in the pill anyway. So it became an easy decision to make, you know, to start using heroin to support my habit, to avoid these withdrawal symptoms, you know, but when I'm using drugs, I never drank at all, never drank. I'm not spending any of my money or any of my resources on alcohol. So every time I would get clean, I would start drinking again because in order for me to have fun as a kid who's in his early twenties or late teens You know, everybody that I knew that I'm hanging around with is drinking, you know. So I'm I'm drinking alcohol. And then before you know it, I'm right back where i where I started again. I'm right back into the drugs. You know, so I went many years without barely drinking at all. So anytime I got clean, I would think that alcohol was never the real problem, that drugs was my problem. As long as I'm not doing drugs, I can live normal. And my idea, because alcohol was always normalized to me, was alcohol was a normal part of life. And alcohol wasn't even part of the conversation at all. But when I got to this last, you know, period of of going into rehab, I already tried, you know, controlled drinking before and it never ended well. So I had to make a decision in my life that I need to give up alcohol. To me, alcohol is the worst of all the drugs to me, right? Because it is the one that plays the most tricks with my head. I know where drugs bring me. Alcohol was the one that was more deceptive than anything else because I didn't see the necessarily evil that alcohol brought with it, you know, and I didn't know how to function normal without drinking to have fun at the same time. I would forecast every event in the future. What what am I going to do for St. Patrick's Day? What am I going to do for the Thanksgiving, the night before Thanksgiving, 4th of July, all these holidays? I'm thinking ahead of time, you know, how am I going to stay sober and actually have fun without drinking? And then a lot of people around me, sober support said, you need to slow down. You need to worry about not drinking today. You need to focus on the moment. You need to focus on the present. You know, don't worry about down the road. We'll, we'll deal with that day when that day comes, you know. And when I was in sober housing, I started to build relationships with a lot of guys in recovery. And I learned to start going to places with groups of people that had the same agenda as me, that were sober. And we were going out together. It became so much easier staying sober, having a support system around me of other people in sobriety. I started to learn how to have fun in sobriety. I started to be able to come to a place that I don't need alcohol in my life in order to have fun. And that was a great place to reach overall at the end of the day. So then I made a decision If, if I'm struggling so much to give up this very one thing, to get my whole life back, something that I never do anyways when I'm using, that makes that very that one thing such a you know enough of a problem at the end of the day that I need to take a good look at it. And that's where a lot of young people struggle with getting off of drugs is they don't see uh, the dangers of drinking, and a lot of times their families don't either. Oh, he's you know he's fine. You know he's having a couple beers. He's not using heroin. He's not using pills. He's not using cocaine they don't put it all you know, into the same equation. You know? And you know, it, it doesn't necessarily mean that it applies for everybody, but I know, I don't know, tens of thousands of people through this process you know, of, of working in recovery, of being sober, living in recovery. And I don't know many success stories that were able to hold on to that one thing at the end of the day. For me, a lot of the people that got sober especially at a young age were the ones who quicker than others decided to give it all up at the end of the day, you know, and it was worth every, you know, every gift that I've been given in life has been a direct result to that decision I made to give up that very one thing that was bigger problem than the rest uh, is what it turned out to be, you know, so, you know, big part of that process was just, you know, getting through life and figuring out how to deal with life without having to self-medicate. And those support systems helped me through a lot of those processes at the end of the day. I had to do a lot of work on myself. There was a lot of problems there. There was a lot of behaviors, the lying, the stealing, the cheating, the manipulating, all those behaviors, you know, they're addictive, you know, addict behaviors at the end of the day, you can't continuously act that way or behave that way and expect to stay sober for long-term recovery you got to work on yourself you got to work on your person because I wasn't able to do it while in detox like I was always trying to do it just figure out how much student loan debt I was in Tony it took me one year just to look at how much debt I was in from registering for classes that I was dropping at Bentley oh yeah you know? I'm sure oh yeah. yeah you know so you rack okay. up quite a bill pretty easily you know so we, before we
1: run out of time I want to treat it now you're 23 years old it's you're going sober on April 14th, and you're 23 years old. And now, how do you make this leap to now being involved in places like Evoke Wellness and all these other things that you were doing? I mean, you, because obviously you you mended pretty well. Either you know you found a new um, a new contingent of of people in your life, like Jim Wahlberg and a few others that you know put you going the other direction now.
0: Yeah, absolutely. A big part of it was was creating resources back home, right? Because I, I had to leave state. I had to go out of the state in order to access care. And there was care around. It was just very hard to obtain. And I needed, this, I needed to get away. And separate myself from the people that i was you know hanging around with at that time um but it was it was sad to see that there wasn't a lot of resources back home so a big part of that push was to create more treatment more access to resources back home you know that's when i started doing the intervention services that's when i eventually you know surrounded myself with people who had open treatment programs in their you know past and their career and started working with them and to open up my own programs in the state of Massachusetts, you know, to successfully bridge that gap, to successfully bring more resources there. But a lot of the, you know, relationships that helped me get there were all directly tied to being in the trenches, you know, alongside people like yourself and, and doing a lot of advocacy work and really, you know, fighting against, you know, Uh, The greed of, of, you know, companies like Purdue Pharma, you know, being out there with you and, 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 and rubbing shoulders, you know, against so many people that have been just devastated by, uh, you know, you know, Oxycontin, you know, in these pills and the access to these drugs, you know, in so many different ways, you know, so building those relationships alongside people in that fight, in those trenches, you know, advocating for more resources, um, you know, helped me in a lot of ways. Uh, understand, you know how to kind of create more resources in the home state that I love so much for people that are struggling, you know, that are in need. Um, and and that that really helped me in a lot of ways. You know, just kind of push me, continuously push me, and keep me on track in terms of you know, my, my goals in life of what I wanted to accomplish, you know, not only for myself, but for a lot of people that I knew that was struggling, I wanted to create more resources to hopefully bring to them one day. You know, I got a lot of friends and a lot of family. They don't have resources, you know, for treatment. To me, one of the biggest blessings at the end of the day is being able to open that door for them and say, whatever you need, whatever you need at all. I know I haven't talked to you in 10 years, in 15 years, you've been out there you know, in the work, in the depths of hell. But when that call happens and you, and that that phone rings, the door is open for as long as you need, you know? And to me, that's one of the biggest gifts of, of all is having the ability to be able to, you know, provide those resources because of the people with me in this fight, you know? And, um, there's nothing better than seeing that light come back on with somebody, especially when, you know, not only do they feel hopeless, you know, but a lot of times, you know, you constantly are battling to, you know, help somebody, give them the tools to save their life uh, and they don't get it. And you almost become hopeless right alongside with them that, you know, we're never going to be able to, you know, see, uh, you know, this person get it. Um, So when that light turns on and that person is doing better, Uh, there's just, there's no greater feeling in the world um, to know that you are uh, able to kind of help or be part of that process. You know, you can't never take their, their, you know, the, you can never take the credit for the work that they put in, right? Because everybody who goes through this process is responsible for the effort that they put in towards their recovery. But you have to get them to a place where they're, where they're able to even recognize how sick they are. And that's why I don't care if someone goes into treatment willingly or unwillingly. I don't care at all at the end of the day. You know, a lot of times people say, well, they need to want it for themselves. They all want it for themselves at different periods. They might want it for themselves at two o'clock in the morning when they're alone. But that window of willingness, it closes very quickly. And they're short they're brief. But I can tell you this thing. They don't want to be where they're at. They don't want to be a drug addict. They don't want to be losing all their relationships. They don't want to be miserable. They don't want to be depressed. But they don't know how to help themselves. So I'm going to fight to get them in as much as I possibly can because I know when they get to that moment of clarity, they will then at that point consistently want it for themselves because anybody would. Nobody wants to be living that way at the end of the day. They're just living in fear. And for them, the most important, the important thing is, you know, their survival instincts are telling them to avoid withdrawal symptoms over anything else. And that's what we need to overcome. Now, when you were in the
1: treatment center in Florida, did your mother pay for that? Or did you, how did that get, how was, how did this guy keep, kept calling you? How did he find you?
0: my mother connected to him online, I believe at one point, um, you know, we didn't have the, uh, the best insurance. So, you know, some of it ended up getting, you know, scholarship. My father, uh, did some things to, to raise, you know, uh, a couple thousand dollars to me to, to get down there, to go to this program. And, you know, I didn't have any resources for aftercare. One of the guys that was in treatment with me, uh, was from Indiana and a friend of his ran a sober house. They call them halfway houses down there. Um, you know, and he called him and asked him for a scholarship for me to go to his halfway house until I could get a job and start working to pay off back rent. Um, and he called that person and the person agreed to let me come in. And, you know, I got, I got a, a spot on the couch, you know, in the half, halfway house, I got a job doing tree services, You know, jumped on the back of a pickup daily. You know, drove to the kind of middle of nowhere and just kind of started cutting, cutting off branches and and kind of uh, you know, starting getting a paycheck. You know, being paid minimum wage, started paying my back rent off, and then eventually, you know, started saving resources when I moved out of sober living to, you know, put down a, a deposit on an apartment with somebody that I was in sober living with, um, you know, and just really started slowly, you know, putting to the pieces together to kind of build build my life again, you know. At the end of the day, um, you know. So I remember the first apartment that I had. There was a promotion at that time. I mean, th- these things don't happen like they do today, right? <laughs> the cost of living is just uh, shot up everywhere, including Nia. But there was a promotion that the first and third month were for free. There was a, a, a deposit to move in, application fee and a deposit. So we paid it that day and we moved in. So I moved into a bedroom that I had no furniture. So my bedroom was a more of a walk-in closet. I had my clothes folded in the corner of the room. And then when I got to the third month of no rent, because uh, the second month we had to pay, the third month of no rent, I went out and bought a dresser, a bed frame, and a mattress. You know, And I couldn't tell you how proud I was to start having these things in my life again and feeling like you know I worked hard for them at the end of the day. You know, Because that's what recovery is all about. It's working for you know, these, you know, gifts, you know, that ultimately, um, you know, you, you have to fight, you know, for, you know, and my, my biggest thing that I learned through that process in early recovery was that life wasn't always going to be easy. You know, I had a lot of financial insecurities from growing up. So I struggled a lot with finances and got stressed out a lot from dealing with not having a lot of resources, you know, at my disposal, but be, what began to shift, that changed everything for me was my attitude and my outlook on life cuz those things don't matter at the end of the day i've had a lot of friends in this process that have been super successful all the resources that you can imagine and they were miserable and eventually they got high again and relapsed because you know they weren't taking care of themselves and doing what they need to do to live you know a healthy productive life You know, I mean I've had situations where I've had nothing, no resources all, and I've been the happiest of my life I've ever been. You know, so everything's really reflective on your attitude and the outlook on life. And for me, it's a direct correlation to how well I'm taking care of myself and my recovery. You know, am I going to meetings? Am I going to the gym? You know, when I start getting complacent, because I naturally do you know, in different periods of my life, my attitude and my outlook on life begins to suffer. You know, uh, you know, I don't like my job. I, you know, I'm, I'm unhappy with my, you know, just a million things. And it all directly correlates to self-care more than anything else.
1: Well, you're definitely giving back. Now, I'm going I'm to guess here, you're 38 years old or
0: 39? Thir- 36, going on 37, June.
1: Okay. All right. <clears throat> I was just giving you that a few extra years.
0: <laughs> There's a black phrase coming in now.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, somebody who's 36 years old, who's never been had a problem with addiction, to be able to open a place like the Evoke Wellness Center is an amazing accomplishment. A lot of people, you know, always work for someone else. And here you are with this beautiful facility. And I've walked through it and I've seen it. And I had some, a friend of mine actually stayed there and she's doing extremely well, by the way. Right. And She's doing extremely well. She's getting I'll her license it. and got a nice apartment down in Wareham. And so she's uh, really successful. Hasn't had a drink in almost two years.
0: Unbelievable. So, Unbelievable.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, and that's the rewarding part of what you do. I'm sure you, you, you're, you're always being rewarded with these success stories. And you know, you're, you're giving back and you're saving people's lives, really. And and not only their lives but their family's lives because when an addict is in deep trouble, the family's in total chaos. You yeah. know, it's one parent wants to help, another parent says kick them out. You know, it's, it's just it's always chaos, and sometimes it it the family caves because of it. You know, absolutely. So, yeah. yeah. So again, and um, when somebody comes to, let's jump ahead a little bit. When somebody comes to evoke wellness. You're getting them just like we where you were in the early stage, correct? Um, <clears throat> they're going to go through dope sick while you while they're in there, and
0: um, yeah, we have. I mean, we have a a medical team twenty four seven because it's inpatient detox, so it's a, it's the highest level of care. You know, at the early stages where you meet somebody, so our medical team, you know, our nurses, nurse practitioners, psychiatrists, clinicians, case managers will all kind of support them through that early. Process, which is more medical, medically driven, you know, to wean them off the drugs and alcohol in a safe way and try to keep them as comfortable as possible. But they're going to feel discomfort. Discomfort is part of the process of recovery at the end of the day. Drugs and alcohol, you know, is what makes us feel comfortable, you know, and you have to kind of push yourself uh, to stop feeling better by, you know, making them go through feelings of discomfort, you know? That's that's part of the process of recovery. It really is. You can have the best new job opportunity in the world, right? And you you walk in the doors and you're in training. And when you're going through a new job opportunity, you feel like as they're giving you so much information in the process, you feel like you're getting dumber as the days go on cuz you're processing yeah. But you also you don't know anybody there at the company. So it's new. So it's very uncomfortable. So even though it's the best opportunity in your life, it's still uncomfortable. You have to go through discomfort and anything worth getting and and any rewards that you're looking to get. You need to go through that uncomfortableness at the end of the day. You know, so we'll work through them to get to get through and overcome, you know, the detox part of the program. And then we'll transition them into the clinical stabilization track. And that's where the real work begins, right? That's when you start addressing those underlining issues that we were talking about earlier in the conversation.
1: Yeah. I've, my, my observation, I think I've known you now for about five years or four years. And my observation is you have a type A personality.
0: Absolutely. You're you a very
1: <laughs> driven and you've taken all the negative energy that the drugs gave you, and you have now reversed it, and you're a high energy guy, and you're out there saving hundreds of lives, maybe thousands of people. And that that is your total goal. And I also believe you've picked up a little religion on the way, since the man next door in the bed next to you was praying and you 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 thought that was a good idea after a while. After you first said, I'm sure you were saying, said, Oh my God, what is this guy doing? You know, but oh. then you said. Oh, my yeah. God. So maybe you have your own God. But now, now that was working for you. I've always told somebody, if you have that addiction problem, you know, your addiction gene, you've got to replace it with something positive. Being in the gym, for me, it's 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 making sales, you know. I have to, I go out and work. And making a sale is where I get my natural high.
0: Yeah. You know,
1: just just doing my thing. And now helping others is another thing that I I feel very positive. And,
0: and, and basically. Right. Being able. I mean, you've always talked to me of nights playing ball. I, I, I play hockey, ice hockey, you know, still, you know, I play two times a week, you know, Tuesday nights and Sunday nights. And I tell you, it's some of the best, you know, it's, it's one of the best outlets for me just in, in living normal life is to be able to kind of be on a team, the locker room camaraderie, you know, going out there and playing hockey still like, like I did in my early childhood years that I enjoyed so much. You know, doing those things again are just some of the blessings for, you know, being sober today for sure.
1: Yes. You know, we are social creatures and being with, with the other guys on the team is really helpful. And, um, there was a study done years ago, not that long ago about this rat that they put into a box by itself. And, and then one of the water things that was full of, um, some type of opioid water and the rat would go to that all the time instead of the fresh water and as soon as they put the rat into a social setting with all kinds of other rats and little places and things for it to do spin wheels and so forth the rat never went back to the opioid water and because it was now in a social setting where everything was good
0: yeah social absolutely nice so do you play hockey in florida I, I do. It's actually getting more and more popular down here. I can get to three rinks in thirty minutes from where I live, and they're building another one, you know, ten minutes from my house. So it's, uh, you know, a lot of people have relocated from the uh, from the winter <laughs> down here. That's and, and that's, made made a choice, you know, for some warmer wor- warmer weather, you know. So
1: so that's pretty good, you know, because you're basically from Bruins country, and then <laughs> yeah. uh, all of a sudden there's all these. New England is living in Florida, so that's I get it. You know, I,
0: I got Sean Thornton down here with me. You know, he's down the rink all the time. You know, so it's, uh, it's a lot of a lot of retired ex NHL players. You know, college players have relocated down here, raised families down here. want to get their children on the ice. So the programs are definitely getting more developed. You know, over the years, which is which is good because I'm I'm a, you know, love hockey. I'm,
1: a, I'm gonna guess you're a center forward.
0: Yes, you got it. <laughs> <laughs> Typical type A guy.
1: And yep. the same thing in baseball, I'm a pitcher. You know, I want to be go. in charge. I want to be in control. <laughs> so that's where it goes. So I really want to thank you for all your time. And hope all the listeners understand the when, we're, we're the courage to hope. And you are the classic example of coming from the, from the bottom and working your way up. And now you're helping hundreds to thousands of people. So there is you have the courage and have the hope this is what could come you know and i really think you're you're a great example for all of my listeners and anybody out there who has a child with an addiction problem um this is um this is these are the possibilities and and if you want to get a hold of michael you can call evoke wellness and cohasset and um get in get in touch with them there if you want to leave a message at wmexboston.com and We'll pass it on to Michael um, that will also be good. And again, we really appreciate your time. And this is Tony LaGreca and signing off. Um, Again, get out there, be safe, be sober, and let's all make it happen.
0: Thank you, Tony. I was honored to be on the show. I appreciate all your hard work and being alongside you. is just such a blessing. So happy to help anywhere I can.
1: Thank you very much, Michael.